Right now on the Daily Debrief, two attacks on religious communities this holiday season. We break down the charges in one case and the law in the other. Also, lawyers chime in on what could be movie producer Harvey Weinstein's best shot at beating sex crimes charges. Plus, we're still pouring through thousands of pages of records recently released in the case of Jake Patterson, who admitted to murdering the parents of a Wisconsin teenager. And there are going to be thousands of cops assigned to Times Square. New York police plan tight security as 2019 departs with the drop of a ball. The Daily Debrief brings you the day's top legal stories. It's our last broadcast of 2019. to the debrief everyone the holiday season for two religious communities went from a time of peace and worship to one of violence in new york this dramatic video shows the moment nypd officers arrested grafton thomas two hours after he's accused of launching a machete attack on five people in monsey new york as they were celebrating hanukkah federal prosecutors today charged thomas with hate crimes thomas already pleaded not guilty to five counts of attempted murder and one count of burglary Police say the suspect's journals contained anti-Semitic content and that he searched the Internet for information about why Hitler hated Jews. In Texas, police have identified 43-year-old 43, 43 Keith Thomas Kinnunen as the man who shot and killed two parishioners at a Christian church. A volunteer security guard who is a reserve deputy and firearms instructor returned fire and killed the suspect. A Texas law which took effect in September allows licensed gun owners to carry in places of worship. That so-called good guy with a gun law was passed after politicians described the victims of a 2017 church shooting as defenseless. A federal judge has ruled that the city of Dallas will not be held liable for the shooting death of Botham Jean by then off-duty police officer Amber Geiger. Attorneys for the Jean family filed their notice of appeal of the judge's decision in a wrongful death lawsuit against the city and Geiger personally. The family says Geiger used excessive force when she gunned down Botham Jean inside his apartment and argued better police training could have prevented the death. The judge agreed with the city, however, that the family failed to state a claim upon which relief could be granted. That's a common procedural move which wipes away a case at an early stage because the law won't support the family's claims, even if the facts the family alleged were true. Of course, the civil case against Geiger remains moving forward, as does her criminal conviction. Earlier this year, Botham Jean's sister told me what the criminal conviction meant for her. I am satisfied with the murder conviction. Um, with the sentencing, I honestly was hoping for more. Um, the figure I had in my mind was minimum 15. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's there and we have to accept it. Um, I don't think there, there will ever be justice, being that you know my brother was taken from us um, for no reason. I don't think anything she said swayed me from just knowing that she took my brother's life, again, for no reason. Justice in, in my eyes would be that we don't have to attend these rallies anymore and there is not another senseless victim. So that would be justice for me. We are looking further into the more than 2,800 pages of police records in the case of a Wisconsin girl taken from her home after her parents were murdered. Jake Patterson pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree intentional homicide and one count of kidnapping in the disappearance of Jamie Kloss. 
Patterson is serving a life sentence without any chance of parole, plus an additional 40 years. This quad car video released by the Barron County, Wisconsin Sheriff's Department shows officers racing to the Kloss home. Here they passed Jade Patterson with Jamie Kloss in his trunk. Officers came running after a short 911 call from Jamie's mother's cell phone just seconds before she was shot and killed herself. We're hearing that call from the mother, Denise Claus, for the first time now. Most of it is unclear. We're about to play it for you with the warning that some of what you may hear may be difficult to listen to. We've heard most of the core story before of how Patterson approached the Claus home wearing a ski mask, shot and killed Jamie's father near the front door, and then shot and killed Jamie's mother as she tried to protect Jamie inside the bathroom. However, Patterson's interrogation transcript tells us even more. Speaking with authorities just after Jamie Kloss broke free, Jake Patterson told police the entire story. Though some of the report is blacked out, we can report that Patterson admitted approaching the Kloss home twice before the actual shootings and kidnapping. He said he chickened out before going through with it. He said if it wasn't Jamie, it would probably be someone else he took. He said he felt bad for killing the parents and admitted he ruined two people's lives. Patterson said he barely planned, had no clothes for Jamie to wear, but kept his gun loaded in case police showed up at his home. He said he assumed he could get an apartment with Jamie Kloss or maybe let her go after a year. When asked what his punishment should be, Patterson said, I don't think Wisconsin has a death penalty. It's probably going to be life in prison. And that is exactly what Patterson received from the judge. Now to the recordings of audio radio transmissions from the police cars who raced to the Kloss home. Here the officers struggled to determine whether they were at the scene of a mur murder-suicide or something more. We've edited the raw audio from the officers' microphones that were attached to their body cameras over footage from one of the squad cars. Sheriff's office! Sheriff's office! You don't know that. There were several voices. Sheriff's office! Who's inside? Watch our asses, young. Yep, I got your six. Yep. Get on the radio, let them know. That Baron's thing out. Sheriff's office! Announce yourself! There's an, I don't see a gun, guys, so let's not run it off with a suicide. Yeah. I'm gonna run these 28. Have EMS stage. Eric, you want to, you want him to cover this door? And, I mean, you go Have clear. Have EMS stage. Okay. Sheriff's office, if you're inside, announce. We gonna hold this for Baron PD. We got broken glass right there next to your elbow. There's a shotgun shell. I don't see a shotgun. Go grab a long gun. Okay. One at a time. Yep. Quickly. Two shotgun shells.
This door was open? Yep. This this door this glass door right here, I'm kneeling open. It was closed. John? Yep. I'm gonna hold this. You wanna grab my shield? Get my keys off my belt right here. Yep. Right there. We're still missing the gun. We're missing a lot. Yep. Um I'm gonna stand here until Eric comes back with a long gun. Have them advise through a three three oh one one male down the seat for the house declare. Notify three oh three and three oh one, advise one male down, multiple rounds spent. After discovering Jamie's father dead, officers then talked about clearing the home, and inside they found Jamie's mother. Again, this is sound from the officers' body cameras. They didn't release the video, just the sound, and were playing it under video from a squad car dash cam parked outside. Here, officers talk about passing that suspicious car we showed you on their way to the scene and about going into the house unsure of what was inside. Run around, grab your shield. I got my rifle. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, no, I got my pistol. I'm sorry. If I got the shield, I'll take pistol. That truck's been here. It's got leaves on it. That one car was heading out as we were coming. Well, but they we'll yielded. Have them on camera. Camera? Yep. Um. A couple things. But why is there a shell inside? Is that shell spent? Can you tell, Eric, the one down the hallway? Like well, just grab a long gun and just cover our entry here, okay? Just a quick guess if you miss the homeowner or the resident dead, we might be missing our suspect. I don't know. Slow and steady? Slow and steady. Sheriff's office! I'm going to hold right here if you want to clear left and right. Right. You want to here? Just both you dip into the living room, clear that completely. We got doors, we got hallways. Eric, cover. I'm gonna break left. You cover this room to the right, okay? Okay. Uh, cover that room. We got a dead body in this one. We got a body in here too. See a shotgun. I do not, dude. This. Something happened. There, there's doors kicked in right here. You want to double check? I'm assuming this person is deceased right here. Let's bring our guests in to discuss these developments in the case as these new documents have been released. Attorney Terry Austin is here along with forensic death examiner and Professor Joseph Scott Morgan. Joseph, this is scary stuff because officers didn't know what was going on in real time as they approached the home, as they went inside the home. And what's missing here is a sense that there's a missing young girl out there basically being driven to another scene in the trunk of a vehicle they passed right outside the family property. Yeah, very dynamic situation, Aaron. And they, they have no idea what they're walking into. Remember, you can hear them talking about getting a shield. This is a shield so that they can make entry into the home. It's a ballistic shield. One officer tells, I would assume it's probably a supervisor, says, get a long gun to cover us. That means that he's either going uh, probably for an AR-15, which they some police officers carry in their car, or possibly a shotgun, just to make sure that they're covered with a little bit uh, heavier artillery as they're going to make entry. And then they, you hear them at that moment, Tom, they say, listen, we got a dead body in here. And they know that something terrible has happened. 
They don't know what's happened to that front door. Maybe it's been kicked in. Maybe it's been blasted open. Um, and so, and the fact, and it's kind of really illustrated, you had mentioned the car passing them along the way. You never know what's hiding around each corner. Uh, there she was going down the road, and they had to wait many, many days afterwards before she was finally recovered alive. You know, the officers talked there about possibly getting the license plate scanner readings of that car they passed because they started to say maybe that car was a little suspicious. But then in the interrogation recordings, Terry Austin, the defendant, who they ultimately found, basically said, well, I had a stolen license plate on the car, so would they have even gotten anywhere with that? Well, I think they probably would not have gotten very far with that, but it is extremely frightening to think of the fact that the defendant is leaving the scene with the child in his car, and they could have stopped the car, but they had no idea. And as Joseph said, you know, the scene is very frightening. You don't know what to expect. You don't know if the defendant is still there with a weapon, so they have to be extremely cautious. It all turned out as well as it could have in the end, but we hear from these recordings and through these transcripts just more of what went down back in Wisconsin when this whole scene was hot and when there was a missing person to be found. As we wind down 2019, we're also looking ahead to 2020. Millions of people will be tuning in to non-legal networks to watch the ball drop at midnight coming up on New Year's Eve. The New York Police Department provided this update on security plans for Times Square. Our men and women in blue will be out in full force protecting the ball drop in Times Square. Most of them will be in uniform in highly visible posts. But as always, we will have several teams out there that will not be visible. While there are no current specific credible threats to New Year's Eve, we will have a strong counterterrorism overlay. NYPD canines trained to detect the presence of explosive material will also be out there. We're going to have observation posts assigned to buildings our aviation unit will be overhead, surveying rooftops and ensuring the crowds are safe. Also in the air, weather permitting this year is gonna be our drones. And we're gonna have one of the best, most protected events in the world. Come out, enjoy, and have a very safe new year. And still ahead here on The Debrief, a Hollywood movie producer will soon stand trial for alleged sex crimes. We hear from the accusers and discuss a possible defense strategy when we return. Welcome back to The Debrief, everybody. A British-based publication is reporting that Harvey Weinstein may have a strong legal defense to sex crimes charges. The former movie producer goes on trial in New York January 6th. Several attorneys not involved with the case tell The Express that New York law requires forcible compulsion, which includes physical force or threats of death, injury, or kidnapping. Without physical force, the lawyers say Weinstein can't be convicted. Another lawyer said Weinstein's lawyers could argue a no-turned-to-yes scenario with the accusers. That would be interesting. Meanwhile, The Guardian is reporting that lawyers might receive as much as 10 times what many of Weinstein's accusers might receive in a proposed global civil settlement involving Weinstein's insurers. More than 80 women, of course, have accused Weinstein of wrongdoing. Canadian actress Erica Rosenbaum says Weinstein sexually harassed and assaulted her on three separate occasions 15 years ago. I think I carried a lot of guilt for um, not being more assertive perhaps for not being more aggressive um 
now I feel very much that um, the responsibility the responsibility was on him um, to not step out of line and and not on me as a young person um, to defend myself appropriately. He was my superior in every way. He was much older. He was much larger, um, and he was, you know, for all intents and purposes, my boss or the boss at, um, at, at any Hollywood party or in any Hollywood room. Uh, and he, he should have acted accordingly. And, um, and, uh, and it, it does, it is not on the, um, it is not on the young person who is in a vulnerable position to defend themselves properly. It is on the person in power, um, to act appropriately. Actress Katherine Kendall claims Weinstein sexually assaulted her in 1993 when she was rising up in the movie industry. When I think of all he did for women, I keep thinking of all he did to women. I mean, he did more. He shattered more people. He broke more people's dreams. He tortured people. He absolutely tortured people. And it seems like there's no... I mean, he did way more of that than he did buoy up women and help different women have careers. And even the ones he helped have careers, he hurt them also at the same time. It's incredible that there's a trial. I mean, when I first you know, spoke in 2019 or 17, um, to think that it would come to this, to think that for 20 years before that, I lived with this thinking, well, it just isn't something anyone's ever going to care about. So this is the way the world goes. And it really was the way the world went. I mean, that was not moving or changing. And to think that not only did all these women come forward, but there's a trial is incredibly moving. Outside court earlier this month, Weinstein's defense attorney slammed back at the accusers who disagreed with her tactics. She said Weinstein deserves constitutional due process just like anyone else. Mr. Weinstein is looking forward to January 6th as he has from the very beginning. Mr. Weinstein has a right to a fair trial. He is believed to be innocent until proven guilty under the laws of this great country. And if we fail to recognize that or remember that, we're not only doing Mr. Weinstein a disservice, we're doing all of us a disservice. And I, I think the problem that I've had, especially as of late, uh, especially given the prosecutor's desire to try to gag me from speaking to all of you, Mr. Weinstein has a right to cross-examine and question his accusers. He has a right to ask questions. He has a right through his lawyers to cross-examine the stories that they tell, which we intend to do, and we have a right to do. And in doing so, it is not victim-shaming. It is not putting people in circumstances that they were not going to be put in in any other circumstance for any other case. And just because a woman makes a claim does not mean that it is true. And just because Mr. Weinstein is accused of a crime does not mean that he is guilty. We insisted that he use a walker today. The press berated him last week and said he was faking and he was pretending. We wanted him to use a walker last week, and Mr. Weinstein didn't want the press to think he was seeking sympathy. He is in pain, he's having surgery, and we will be back in court on January 6th for trial. Let's jump in with our experts now. Joseph Scott Morgan is here with attorney Terry Austin. So, Terry, this is sort of an interesting theory that we're hearing in some of these British publications that this forcible compulsion area of New York law may basically be the key 
to get out of these charges for Weinstein. Is it enough or are the accusations just strong enough at this point? I don't think that defense is going to be enough. He's going to have to defend himself and say what he can to show that he really didn't force these individuals to have sex. And it will be literally a he said, she said. The women are saying, and there's so many of these women who are saying it, that they were forced. And certainly, Aaron, even if from a criminal perspective they don't prevail, they certainly will have a lot to say in a civil action. Oh, certainly. Joseph Scott Morgan, trying to seat a jury in this case is probably going to take a lot of time because the case basically has just been everywhere, especially over the last couple of weeks. If you were seating the jury, what would you look for? Uh, yeah, it will be difficult. Shades of Michael Jackson here. Uh, you, I don't know that it's going to be possible to find somebody that's that's objective about this. Uh, people feel so very, very passionate about the case as well. They should because it's raised a lot of interesting insights into our culture, uh, and uh, it really brings brings into focus. You know, these people that are in power. I, at the end of the day. Uh, one of the most difficult things, I think, for prosecutors in this case is going to be physical evidence. You know, it goes back to this idea of injury and harm and this sort of thing. How are you going to be able to demonstrate this in court? Um, you know, the forensic scientist in me, you know, is saying, well, uh, do we have any kind of physical evidence going back over all of this time? Is there digital evidence that can put these two people together in a room? Uh, you know, these sorts of things. So that's going to be very important. Oh, certainly. Terry Austin, if you were prosecuting the case, how would you move forward? Would you be comfortable moving forward with just the accusers, given that we've got 404B evidence, other bad act evidence, where they're letting all the accusers come in, regardless of whether the charges flow from those accusers or not? I definitely think that it's a good sign for the prosecution that they are going to be able to get all of this other evidence in because the jury is then going to see he did it here and he did it in all of these other cases. There's a pattern and practice here and that will hurt the defense, no doubt. Oh, certainly. And in many states, that type of evidence is strictly limited. In New York, they're allowing it in, in this case, saying there's enough of a scheme or practice here. So again, a much harder case for the defense. Thanks a lot to the panelists. That's all the time we have here on The Debrief. We will see you back here right after the new year. Have a good one.